Would you now turn with me to Psalm 32? Uh, It'll be printed in the bulletin and also will appear on the screen behind me. This summer, we're looking at a different psalm each week. Uh, The psalms are a gift to us because they can put words on what we feel in our soul. Like Jason said last week, most of the time, the scriptures speak to us. But in the psalms, the scriptures speak for us. The book of Psalms helps us to navigate our emotional world. They help us to realize that emotions are a gift from God, uh, that they are a beautiful part of how God created us. Last week, we looked at Psalm 13. What are we to do uh, with our sadness and our grief? And this week, we're going to look, what are we to do with our guilt? What do we do with that yucky feeling we have when we have done something wrong? What do we do with the feeling that we've not done the thing that we know we should have done? It's a universal feeling. We've all been there. How do we deal with our guilt? And to do this, we're going to look at Psalm 32. This was St. Augustine's favorite psalm, so much so that he had it written on the wall next to his deathbed. And if you know anything about Augustine, you know that he was a man who was well acquainted with the feelings of guilt things that he had done in his life. And these are the words, Psalm 32, it's what he wanted close to him when he was at the end of life. So let's read Psalm 32 together. Hear God's word to us today. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who was godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Lord, as we come, we know we need your help. Unless your spirit comes and helps us to understand and to apply and to illumine this passage, uh, what we aim to do is pointless. So Lord, come and help. We need you, we need your spirit to come, and so we ask for it in Jesus' name, amen. When you study the Psalms, what you'll see is that they are often classified by their subject matter. We have Psalms of praise, we have Psalms of lament, Thanksgiving Psalms. What I want to think about, Psalm 32 this morning, as a Psalm of instruction or a Psalm of wisdom. These are words of wisdom from a man who wants us to experience the same joy that he has, uh, to not make the same 
mistakes to avoid the pain that he has experienced. The heading of this psalm lets us know that David is the author, and it's obvious that he is writing about an event in his life that he felt a tremendous amount of guilt over. Many commentators view Psalm 32 as a follow-up to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, David is confessing the sin that he committed against God, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, and the whole nation of which he was king. If you're not familiar with the story, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. He tried to cover up his sin uh, by having Uriah killed. And life completely unraveled for David. It completely unraveled for those around him because of his sin. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him in his sin. And David breaks. In Psalm 51, we have... Uh, the record of David's confession and his repentance before the Lord. But toward the end of Psalm 51, David makes a vow. Uh, As a means of demonstrating his repentance, as a means of amending his wrongs, he says to God that he will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. What David says is, I'm going to tell my story to people so that people will not make the same mistakes that I made, and they will learn from me. I want us to think about Psalm 32 as David making good on his vow in Psalm 51. But there's something I want us to see right off the bat as we look at Psalm 32. The first word that David uses in this psalm is blessed. Just like Jason talked about two weeks ago when he preached on Psalm 1, when the Bible uses the word blessed, and when we use it, 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 it means different things often. In the Bible, blessed means complete wellness in every area of life. It means fulfillment, profound joy and contentment and fulfillment. Don't miss what David is saying to us with just the first word of this passage. David is saying that because of the forgiveness that he has received, that he has more joy after his sin than he did before. That even with the consequences that he faced because of his sin, they were real, they were significant consequences that he faced, David says that he has more fulfillment, more joy, more happiness, and more satisfaction now than he did before his sin. That's something that can be hard for us to accept But we won't understand this psalm unless we understand that because we all think that when we've sinned in some significant or some scandalous way that we are bound to live diminished lives, weakened lives, that our sin now defines us and our sin will follow us for the rest of our lives. But if that's where you are, if that's the way you view your sin, I've got really good news for you this morning, this passage is good news for you. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. There is more joy, there is more fulfillment that is available to you now than you could ever imagine. There is divine and unspeakable peace and contentment that is reserved for those who know they are forgiven. But how do we get what David has 
What did David learn about dealing with his guilt that we can learn in this psalm? I want to think about it in three ways, three words of advice, three words of wisdom from David. First is that we have to make a decision. Second is that we have to be honest with God about our sin. And the third is that we have to let God be honest with us about our forgiveness. So first, in verses 6 to 11, David tells us that we have to make a decision to deal with our guilt. We have a choice. David's initial choice was to not deal with his sin, to not deal with the guilt that he felt over sin. In fact, it seems that he waited months to confess his sin. And then he only confessed his sin when he was under compulsion. His energy was spent covering and hiding rather than uncovering and confessing his sin. He gives us a vivid picture of this in verse 9. He says, don't be like the horse or the mule without understanding. Don't be a stubborn mule. Don't let your stubbornness and pride keep you from confessing your sins. David was the king. David had more power than anyone on earth. And it was his pride that kept him trapped in guilt. And it's our pride that keeps us trapped in our guilt. It is a lie that we believe that if I'm honest about my sin, that I'll lose power, that I'll be weaker. We think that confession is a net loss for us. David would say the exact opposite is true. Confession doesn't make us uh, weaker or less human. It actually makes us stronger. It actually makes us more useful in the hands of God. David tells us what life was like for him in verses 3 to 4 when he didn't deal with his guilt and his sin. He says, when I was silent, my bones wasted away. I groaned all day long. He didn't feel the hand of God holding him and protecting him. The hand of God was heavy upon him. It was like God was putting his finger on the bruise, and it was relentless. David said his strength was zapped. His soul felt like it had been outside in a hot, humid Alabama summer day, and he had no water to help him. He felt lifeless and withering and feeble and afflicted. And it wasn't just that David felt guilty in his soul. He felt guilty in his bones. God made us whole, integrated beings. His guilt was affecting his physical health, his spiritual vitality, and his mental stability. He was as sick as his secrets. Have you ever felt like David describes in verses 3 to 4? I know I have. The pain of guilt made it so it was hard to sleep. I couldn't eat. I couldn't concentrate. I was irritable and tired and achy. The hand of God was heavy upon me. For those who feel the guilt of their sin, David says, you have a decision to make. Do you want to be stubborn like the mule, or do you want to confess your sins? As we consider the decision that's before us, David gives us a word of encouragement. In verse 6, he says, pray to the Lord, pray to God in a time in which God may be found. We can read that verse, and you might be tempted to think, well, am I too far gone? Is God still to be found for me? What you were feeling there is an act of grace. 
the heavy hand of God upon you is his hand of mercy towards you. That you would repent and you would turn to him. The forgiveness of God is available to you today. Today is a day in which God may be found. So what is your decision today? There is a sense in which we make this same decision each and every day. Every time we gather for worship, every time we get together, we have a decision to make. Will I be a mule? Or will I confess my sins and receive what God has for me? So if you want to make a decision to confess your sins, what is it that you're supposed to do with this decision? How can we feel the joy that David felt when he confessed his sin? That leads us to the second point. We are honest with God about our sin. If we're going to deal with our guilt, we have to live in reality. We can't live in some fantasy world. My counselor is fond of saying that we call a thing a thing because we have the overwhelming tendency as sinners to minimize our sin, to rationalize, to shift blame onto other people. And until we can quit those things, until we can quit the denial and the minimization and the blame shifting, we can never really be honest about our sin because we're not living in reality. David uses three different words to talk about his sin, just in the first verse of the psalm. These words show us that for David, his sin was multidimensional. It wasn't just that David did something wrong. It went deeper than that. It went beyond that, further than that for him. The words that he uses are transgression and sin and iniquity. And you might think, well, aren't all those really just the same word? Isn't iniquity just a really churchy way of saying sin? In the original language, they all point to different aspects of sin. Transgression refers to a willful rebellion. David's sin was one of willful rebellion against God. Beneath David's actions was a heart that said, No one will tell me what to do. I am God, and no one can tell me what I can and can't do. I'm in charge, and what I want is most important. I don't care how it impacts anyone else. David didn't stumble into Bathsheba's house by accident. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew, exa- he knew that what he was doing was wrong, and he did it anyway. And we do the same thing. The root of his problem was his selfishness. I want what I want, and I don't care who it impacts. I don't care who I hurt. So when you talk about your sin, when I talk about my sin, does it sound like rebellion? Or does it sound like perhaps it was just a momentary lapse in judgment? The second word that David uses for a sin is actually translated as sin. That refers to missing the mark or falling short of what is required. David's sin wasn't just that he violated an abstract set of principles or his own ethics. His sin was that he violated divine law. He didn't just sin against Uriah uh, or Bathsheba. He sinned against God. And so when you talk about your sin, when I talk about my sin, is there reference to the fact that we've broken divine law, that we do not measure up to what God requires of us. The third word that he uses is translated iniquity, which means crooked or twisted. David's actions are not just rebellious. They're not just law-breaking. They're also crooked. There is corruption that exists inside of David and of us. 
Our sin is corroding our soul. Sin is dehumanizing. It is debasing to us. Do you see what your sin is doing to your own soul? How it disintegrates who you were created to be. How it corrodes not just you, but it corrodes those you sin against. I can understand if you're, you're hearing this and what you're thinking is that when you confess your sins, what is expected, what is needed is an exact and a perfect confession of every sin and every motivation behind every sin. That is not what God requires of us. That's not what David is talking about in this passage. We do want to name our particular sins particularly as our confession urges us to. But we are not forgiven Because we confess our sins perfectly. We are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven because they were paid for perfectly by Jesus. Our confession of sin will always be incomplete. It will always be marred with sin. It will always be motivated by some tinge of self-interest. Even our confession will need confession. What is in view here is not an exact accounting, but rather a disposition of our hearts. It is a willingness to face reality regardless of the consequence, to cut through the denial, and to be rigorously honest about our sin. It is confession without the word but attached to the end of it. We often want to confess like this, I did that, but... I sinned in this way, but, but you did that. No, we take full responsibility for the full sin. David was honest with God about his sin, and that is what led him to joy and to peace and to blessedness. This is one of the reasons why we have a time to confess our sins each week when we gather together. Because when we are honest, when we are honest about our sins, the gospel is that much sweeter to us. When we enter into the reality of what we have done, we are then able to receive the reality of what Christ has done for us. Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century. He tells this story of a man in his congregation, a man who was filled with Uh, guilt and anxiety over the state of his soul, a man much like David describes in verses 3 and 4. This is a man who couldn't believe, he couldn't accept that God actually loved him. And week after week he would come and he would sit under the preaching of the word, he would sit and things just got worse. Nothing seemed to help him. Until one day after the sermon, a man came up uh, to McShane and there was this joyous glow about him. His countenance was lifted and the the cloud of guilt and anxiety that was over his life seems to have been lifted. And McShane asked the man, he said, what happened? How is it that you got this joy? And the man responded by saying this. He said, all the time I have been trying to enter by the saint's door. But while you were preaching, I saw my mistake and I entered in at the sinner's door. What is this man saying? He said, I kept thinking that the way that I, I could deal with my guilt was by trying to act more like a saint, by trying to be better, by trying to be really good. And that did nothing but to sink him in to further despair. He felt no peace. 
There was no sense of forgiveness in his life. But it all changed when he entered into the door marked sinner. When he admitted that he could not save himself, when he came to the end of himself, he found that God was ready and willing to receive him. Are you trying to deal with your guilt through the door marked saint? Are you trying to atone for your sins by being really good? Are you minimizing and rationalizing, shifting blame to ease your, ease your own conscience? It didn't work for David. It didn't work the man in McShane's church didn't work for me, and it won't work for you either. When we are honest about our sins, then we are able to let God be honest with us. So let's move on to our third and final point. Let God be honest with us about his forgiveness. I realize that any time that we talk about forgiveness in the church, that it is both an essential doctrine of our faith, that forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. But it's also a difficult subject uh, for many. Uh, David talks about the forgiveness that he received from God, the divine forgiveness that he received, but that is connected to the forgiveness that we extend to one another. We live in a sinful world, and we have all sinned and been sinned against. Some in this church and some here this morning, you have been sinned against in ways that are life-altering. Life will never be the same because of the ways that you were sinned against. And so the act and the process of forgiveness is hard and it's painful because you know full well that forgiveness is not free. The one who has sinned against often is the one who has to pay the cost of forgiveness. And that's painful. It's painful to pay that cost. One of the images that I could not get out of my mind this week as I was preparing to preach was what was this like? What would it have been like for Uriah's family to read Psalm 32? What was it like for Bathsheba? to read Psalm 32. You, you think there was a part of them that might have said, David, would you mind toning it down a little bit? Uh, do you, you think part of them might have recoiled a little bit when they read Psalm 32? David is out there feeling free and forgiven, and yet they are trapped under the weight of grief and under a load of pain. How on earth is that fair? The fact is, it's not fair. John Cox is a psychologist who has spoken and preached here in the past. He calls this, anytime forgiveness takes place, there is what's called an injustice gap. A gap of injustice, injustice that is always borne by the one who is forgiving so when I talk about forgiveness, I know that it's a topic that is not as simple or as easy or as flat as we might want to make it out to be. There is so much more that needs to be said 
about the dynamics of forgiveness between people, but what I want us to see in Psalm 32, what I want us to remember is that our sins, our sins created a gap of injustice that is so wide that it cost the Son of God his life. That God knows what it is to be sinned against. And he knows what it is to forgive at his own cost. But what I want us to see in Psalm 32 is the overwhelming, earth-shattering good news that God forgives sinners. The same way that David uses three words to talk about his sin, he he uses three words to talk about his forgiveness um, in verse 1. First word that he uses is forgiven. This is a picture of a weight or a burden being lifted from someone's back. You might remember in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian finds his way to the cross and the entire time he's been carrying this back-breaking load of his own sin and guilt. And when he arrives at the cross, his burden is lifted from him. It falls down his back. It begins to tumble and it falls into the tomb and it is never seen again. Some of us still carry the burden of sin on our backs. We walk in this morning with a heavy load of guilt from what we have done. The weight of regret doesn't seem to go away. But just like David, there is a place, there is a person in which the heavy load of guilt can be removed. Your burden can be lifted. In Christ, we are promised that all of our sins are forgiven. Our sins are taken from us, never to be seen again. Not in this life and not in the life to come. Our sins are thrown into the depths of the sea. They are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. I love how David puts it in in verse 5. Notice the tense of this. He says, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The Lord is so eager, is so willing, is so ready, and so desirous to forgive David that before David can even get the words out of his mouth, the Lord has already forgiven him. It is the picture of the son returning home, the parable of the prodigal son. The son is in a far-off country, and he decides to come home. He is so full of guilt and regret, and he's practicing his speech, and he's going to give his dad. He just wants to be one of his father's hired hands. But while he was still a long way off, the father comes running to him. The father interrupts the speech he has been practicing. The father interrupts him and says, let's throw a party. My son, who was lost, is now found. God longs to show you mercy to lift the weight of your sin, and to receive you as his child. second word that David uses to describe his forgiveness is covered. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. This is a word from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Sins were covered when they were paid for in blood. The blood of an animal stood in the place of the blood of a sinner. A substitute was offered in the place of the guilty one. David says later in verse 5 that he didn't try to cover his own sin, but he confessed his sin and God covered his sin. Do you see what he's saying? That there was a price on David's sin. There was a price to be paid for David's sin, just like ours. 
our rebellion, our lawlessness, our destruction, they all demand divine justice. God says you can cover your own sins with your own blood, with your own life, or I can cover them with the blood of my son. Because we know that on the cross, Jesus was uncovered. That he suffered naked and alone and exposed on the cross. He was uncovered so that by faith your sins are covered. That they have been marked, paid in full, and there is no further payment that is needed for your sins. They have been paid for by Christ. The last word that David uses to describe forgiveness is that sins are not counted against him. This is an accounting term. Uh, Because of Jesus, our sins are not put to our account. Our sins are not counted against us. Our sins uh, are not put uh, to us. They are not counted against us. Just picture in your mind the sum total of all your sins, of all your life. Every time you have spoken an unkind word, every time you have thought ill of someone, every time you have harbored resentment, malice, every time you've cheated, lied, gossiped, stolen, borne false witness, lusted, fornicated, lacked in love, dishonored your parents, coveted, been greedy or withheld justice, or been prideful or a thousand more sins I could name. Picture in your mind the enormous sum of your sins. The good news is that in Christ, every single one of them are taken away. Not one of them is put to your account. The debt that you owe has been paid. And there is not a penny that remains. And in Christ, not only are your sins not counted against you, Jesus' righteousness is put to your account. So not only are you seen by God as perfectly innocent, you are seen by God as fully righteous. Jesus was treated as if he did every single sinful thing that you have done, and you were treated as if you have done every single righteous thing that he has done. So if you are in Christ, if by faith you confess your sins, if you receive what Christ has done for you, when God looks at you right now, he does not see the sum total of your sins. He does not see the wreckage of your life. He does not see the guilt that you carry and the shame that you hide. He sees his son. He sees the perfect righteousness of your Savior. So do you want to have the blessed life that David is talking about in this passage? Do you long for deep joy, for unbound fulfillment in life? Then be honest with God about your sin and let him be honest with you about your forgiveness because he longs to forgive. He longs to remind his children that they are forgiven. That's why we come to this table every week to be reminded. To come to this table is to enter through the door marked sinner. This table is only for those who are needy. And when we come honestly admitting our sin, God deals honestly with us, always reminding us that we are forgiven and that we are his. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would take this word, that you would multiply it in your hand for your use and for your glory. So may your steadfast love surround us as we rejoice 
and the righteousness we have in Christ. Hear us in his name we pray. Amen.